So let's begin with the question that I ask in the title of my message, and that is, who are you trying to please? When I read the passage before us in my study break a few months ago, I knew right away this would be the title of the message, Who Are You Trying to Please? So think about it. When it comes to the whole of your life, when you think about your general day-to-day activities and interactions, who is the audience that you are most playing to? Is it your boss? Is it your family, your spouse, your parents, your teachers, your friends, yourself? Who is it that you are most trying to please at any given moment in your life? I think it's a good question to ask. And though most Christians I know would say that they're trying to please who? God in their life. I think it's a lot easier said than done. I I, I think that when it comes to the battles that you and I have in our spiritual lives, one of the battles that we have is this whole battle between people-pleasing and God-pleasing. In other words, Christians tend to talk a bigger game than they live. Most of us struggle with living a life of God-pleasing versus people-pleasing. And to be sure, we don't like it when others are disappointed in us. We don't like it when they don't approve of the things that we do or don't do. We make decisions in our lives that are based on what others might think rather than just on what God thinks. And so we struggle with a solid answer to the question, who are you trying to please? Knowing where we want to go in our destination, but then experiencing a road that is filled with lots of bumps and potholes and barricades and roadblocks and even a lot of side trails. In fact, as I've observed Christians for 30 plus years now and even been aware of the battle in my own soul, here's what I've noticed about our struggle with this whole pleasing thing. And that is that Christians tend to be kind of go on one end of the continuum or the other. And so look up here on the screen and Cactus and Ben, you look up here on the screen, you'll see what I mean. The chart I put up in there on the screen, the center of it is obviously the the center point where we want to be. That when we're centered on God, when we're centered on the cross, we tend to have God first and other people second, which are the two greatest commandments. The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other one is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's when you're centered as a Christian in what God wants for you. But when we fall into a people-pleasing mode or when we're struggling with that, I find that we tend to go from one end to the other. One end is that we get all codependent with those around us and we start capitulating to culture around us. Whether it be moral pressures or pressure to overly please, say, a family member or a boss or something and, and start to fudge on certain Christian convictions, we just get all enmeshed in the world around us and we start to capitulate. And we start to even lose certain aspects of our faith. That's one extreme. But then I know Christians who go to the other extreme and they get so defensive about it that they basically say, I'm not here to please anybody. In fact, you can go to heaven. I don't even want to have you in my life right now. And I sit there and go, my, you're awfully defensive about the subject, aren't you? I mean, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we need to, to, to be able to give an answer for the faith that we have, but to do so with gentleness and respect. And I find that sometimes Christians are so defensive about this people-pleasing, God-pleasing thing that, that we've just alienated ourselves from those around us. And so we struggle. 
We struggle with being codependent on the one end, overly defensive on the other, and by the very nature of struggling, we realize we're in a battle. Now, if you can own any of this struggle today, then you're ready to look at the next paragraph in the New Testament book of Galatians, the book that we're studying this year at Scottsdale Bible Church. And though this paragraph is very short, I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, we're just going to go paragraph by paragraph here, and this paragraph is only one verse. If ever there was one verse that was potent and meaty, this verse is it. It's going to ask two rhetorical questions and make one statement in 35 words or less, but it's powerful. So here's what it says, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, we're going to park in front of this verse primarily this morning for Galatians purposes, Galatians 1 verse 10, and it says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So two key things I need you to see contained right here in these words. And the first one is something that you and I know, but we need to hammer this home because I believe it's implicit in these words here, and that is that you can't always please others. That's what Paul the Apostle, being breathed through by God, is saying here, that you can't always please others in your life. Now, in order to fully get the weight of what he's saying here in verse 10, I need you to understand a little about the setting and circumstances surrounding the original writing of Galatians some 2,000 years ago. You see, our best guess is that Galatians was written sometime between 40 to 50 A.D., just a decade or two after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven. It was likely one of the earlier epistles written by Paul the Apostle, who wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles. And it was written to a group of churches that he most likely had planted himself on his first missionary journey to southern Galatia, which is in Asia Minor, where modern-day Turkey is. So I put a map up there on the screen for you. It's just north of the Mediterranean Sea there, northwest of where the Holy Land is, where Turkey is now. That's where Asia Minor is. And all these little cities that Paul had started churches in. Now, why do I tell you all that? What's important about all of this is that many of the initial Christians in Galatia, now think about this, were most likely Gentiles. In other words, we're not in the Holy Land anymore, but we're not in Jerusalem and so we're now in pagan Rome area, pagan Greek area, and so you got a lot of Gentiles there, people who have very little religious background, or if they did, it would have been some mythical religion based upon Zeus or some Roman religion. And yet at the same time, you also had quite a few Jewish people living in that area. Because of the dispersion and some of the persecution, Jews were also living in Asia Minor there. And so we know that this church was made up of converted Gentiles, converted Jews, and yet this created problems, especially in the early days of Christianity before the New Testament was complete. And here was the problem. As many of you know, Jesus himself was Jewish. And when he came, he came to fulfill the law, but he made it clear not abolish it. So he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament, he came to fulfill it. And so many of the initial followers of Jesus and converts to Christianity were Jewish as well. Paul the Apostle, John, Mark, and they all continued to practice many of their Jewish customs now as Christians. 
And so they continued on with the feasts and the festivals, with circumcision, with particular vows, all found in the Old Testament, but now integrated into their following of Jesus, integrated into their Christian faith. And yet the question quickly arose, as you can imagine, what about the Gentiles? What about those who now claim to be followers of Jesus? Do they too have to follow the Jewish customs in order to be considered a true follower of Jesus and a Christian? Would the male members of a Gentile sect now have to become circumcised and their kids? But would they have to celebrate the Passover? But would they have to avoid pork? I mean, these are all important questions for what it means to be a Christian now. And as you can imagine, the Jewish converts said, yes, of course they need to follow all these Jewish customs, while the Gentile converts said, you got to be kidding me. I mean, this isn't even our religion. And the debate was raging in the churches in Galatia. And to make matters worse, and this was very particular to the Galatian controversy, is that there were some in the churches there that were accusing Paul, who, by the way, was the founding pastor of these churches, of people-pleasing if he dared to come down on the side of the Gentiles. They were accusing him of trying to make the gospel message easier and more palatable by not requiring the Gentiles to live up or to adopt these Jewish customs. And they accused him of selling out because he was Jewish himself. And so before we go any further with Galatians 1.10, please see this, because this is implicit in the passage. Paul was in a no-win situation. No matter what he did here, he was not going to win. If he sided with the Jews, the Gentiles would be all up in arms about having to adopt all these strange customs in order to have a relationship with Jesus. But if he sided with the Gentiles, the Jews were going to accuse him of being soft and abandoning the faith of the Old Testament, which indeed some were already accusing him of. And though we're going to look in a minute at how Paul deals with this dilemma, and it's going to have everything to do with God and his revelation, please simply notice at this point that no matter what he did, he was going to let some people down. He was not going to win in this situation as long as it came to pleasing those around him. And my point is that you and I get this. We get the all-too-common scenario in life that no matter what we do in certain situations in life, we're going to let some people down. That no matter what road we take, when it comes to the fork ahead, there's going to be some that applaud and others that give us a thumbs down. We get the reality that you can't always please others and that there are times in life when we're in a no-win situation. And yet here's what I'm not sure we do get when it comes to this. And that is that there is a very agreed upon theological reason as to why this is so. And it's called the fall. The fall of humankind. Because you see, you and I every day have to deal with our fallen selves, and you know what that's like, I hope. You have to deal with fallen people around you who misperceive you all the time and have different worldviews than you do and different temperaments and different personalities. And when you mix all these fallen people together, the odds mean, the odds are, are against you, and there's going to be times where it's just like sparks fly and you just can't please all of the people all of the time. And it all goes back to the fall. Heaven is not going to be this way. 
The Garden of Eden was not this way. We're in an in-between time right now when no matter how hard you try, you're not going to win when it comes to pleasing all the people around you. And it's just good Christian practice to accept this. If you don't believe me, I want to I wanna show you what I mean by this. I want you to think of three major areas of your life, three things that you and I love dearly and we're involved in on a regular basis. And then I want to show you how each of these three areas are designed to invariably offend some people. I want you to think of your Christian faith, your church, and then yourself. Your Christian faith, your church, and yourself. First, notice that Christianity, by its very nature, will offend some people. Did you know that? Some of you don't like this about Christianity, but it's true. How do we know this? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. And it says this about the Savior that you and I follow. It says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, here it is, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now let me ask you a really simple question that we would ask our first graders in Sunday school. Who is the stone being talked about here? Anybody know? Say it with me. Jesus. If you had said like Herod or Pilate or something like that, I'd send you back to Sunday school. But it's obviously Jesus being talked about here. And isn't it interesting that he says he's the chief cornerstone of our faith? Obviously, he's our Savior. But then for those who don't believe, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's an interesting phrase, quoting the Old Testament. And so what is it talking about there? It's simply saying that there are going to be some in culture when they get the Christian truth claim, when they understand what you are saying, even if you present it in the most winsome, gentle, Zig Ziglar kind of way, they're going to be offended. They're going to sit there and go, I, I can't even believe that you would have a worldview like that. Christianity by its very nature is going to offend some people. I remember one of the first times I experienced this, I was just a young guy, probably 19 years old. I'd been a Christian about a year. I was between my freshman and sophomore year of college, and I was in Cleveland for the summer where my parents lived, and my best friend from high school had moved with his parents to Milwaukee. So I took a road trip to Milwaukee to be with my best friend, and we were really tight in high school. We did a lot of partying together and just a lot of things that, that high schoolers tend to do, especially in a secular environment. But even in the midst of that, we got very close. And I had a fairly radical conversion to Christianity, a radical experience with Christ in my senior, junior, senior year of high school. And, and now I was just, just firing on all eight cylinders as a follower of Jesus. But he was very, very far away from that. In fact, getting into things in college that, that were even worse. So I went to Milwaukee. And on Sunday morning, I announced to he and his family that I was going to church, and wouldn't it be great if my friend came with me? And there's an awesome church in the Milwaukee area called Elmbrook Church, that time pastored by a guy named Stuart Briscoe. Some of you are familiar who he is. He's a Brit. He's got a wonderful British accent, very intelligent, and very winsome to listen to. And I thought, this is going to be great. So me and my friend went to Elmbrook Church. I looked in the bulletin, and I kid you not, that the title of the message said it all. He was speaking on sin that day. And I thought, this is going to be a train wreck. I, th I thought, you know, I, what a topic to choose for the, the topic that my friend is coming to church with. And yet, as Stuart gave the message, it was outstanding. 
I mean, he just simply explained to people that all sin is, it's a big deal, but what sin is, is you and I falling short of God's standard. And that when you see it that way, everybody is a sinner. Everybody falls short. We all have areas of our lives where obviously we don't measure up to God. And because of that, he explained, we need to have that sin forgiven and that that's where Jesus comes in, that Jesus is the one who came to forgive us of our sin through his death on a cross. It was just a wonderful explanation of the Christian faith. So we got in the car, and, and I said to my friends, we were heading out to lunch, I said, so what did you think uh, of the message? And I wasn't prepared for this. He just came out of his seat. He, he said, who is he to tell me that I'm a sinner? He, he said, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good guy. I live a good life. He, he said, I don't have anybody ever tell me that in my life. I remember thinking, well, maybe that's the point, you know? <laughs> I mean, my friend, I, and I wanted to say to my friend, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm not that bold, I, I wanted to say to him, well, you know what, we did a lot of drinking in high school, and now you're getting into cocaine, and you're sleeping around, like you're the furthest thing from Gandhi, like I don't know how you can say that you're not a sinner, you know, I just was befuddled at that, and then I just thought I, I'd just kind of bring up something logical, I said to him, I said, well, you know, it really wasn't Stuart that was saying that, that's actually what the Bible says, and he looked at me, and he said, well, the Bible's wrong. I'm just waiting for lightning to come down. I'm like, the, the Bible's wrong. <laughs> and it was one of my first experiences where I realized that no matter how winsome you are, no matter how, what, the Christian truth claim alone by its very nature is going to offend some people. It's going to be a rock of offense, a stone that, that, that makes them stumble. But for us, it's the chief cornerstone. Uh, Dorothy Sayers once said it this way. Look up her in the screen. She said, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense to it. And she's right. And, and you don't even have to present it in an offending way. You can present it with all the grace in the world. And the truth of the, of the Christian truth and the truth of the Bible is going to turn some people off. That's the first thing you and I need to recognize. But this is just the beginning. As if this were not enough, consider your church and latch on to this. Your church, without necessarily trying to, will offend people at times. And many of you have experienced this. Now, let's wrestle with this. There are obviously times that the church will offend by doing something goofy and inane. And we've all experienced that. Whether it's your pastor or another fellow church member or a program at church, I call it the cringe factor. You know, the pastor's up on the stage, and he or she says something, and you just go, oh, I can't believe you just said that. I, I can't believe that I brought my friend to church today. I'm going to have to undo this for the next four or five weeks. And, and we've all had experiences like that. But, but, but that aside... There are also plenty of times in which the church, and tell me this isn't true, the church is just being the church, the beautiful bride of Christ, and by so doing, she's going to offend. Uh, Peter and John experienced this in Acts chapters 4 and 5. They'd been dragged before the Jewish leaders and told not to preach about Jesus publicly anymore which I find kind of hilarious because that's kind of core to the mission of the church, but they were told not to do this. And they were told if they just didn't preach publicly about Jesus, all would be fine. And look at their response in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, and then chapter 5, verse 29. 
It says, but Peter and John answered them, the Jewish leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. And then 529, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And then they went and preached, obviously, to the offense of the Jewish leaders. And so what's going on there? They're simply saying, if, if we're going to be the church in all of her glory and in the mission that God has given us, there are times when just we don't even mean to, but it's going to be offensive. And what you need to know is that there's times that your church is going to do the same thing. I did a sermon last fall that many of you liked. I heard from you, but I is equally as contentious. It was a sermon called Values for the Voting Booth. Some of you remember that. And it was a sermon where I got up on a Sunday before the election, and you guys know me, I'm not a very political guy, but I felt strongly that there were some biblical values that are core to what the Bible says. I mean, they've been core for 2,000 years. Everybody's agreed on them. They are no-brainers. Values like the sanctity of human life and, 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 and the preciousness of marriage as God defines it, and then religious liberty or freedom. These are like things that are all over the Scripture. And I simply said, I'm not trying to tell you how to vote or, or which party to do or anything like that. That's none of that. But just take these values and any others that you find and I mentioned others as well, into the voting booth with you. And that was my message. And I got some really nice emails, but let me ask you a question. Do you think I got some very vitriolic emails as well? Oh, boy, did I ever. I've kept them all. I know your names. And I, and I got... <laughs> I love all of you, but I was just stunned. I mean, some of them I couldn't even answer because some of them were just basically saying you know, I can't believe you believe those things. And I remember thinking, you can't believe I believe those things. Like, are we, re I'm not, are we reading the same Bible? I mean, it's just so clear to me that I thought, I don't even know how to go there. And, and it was just, but I was just, I got a lot of heat for that message. Here's what I learned. That message was very offensive to some people. And I understand that. There are times when your church, just being the church without necessarily trying to offend, will offend. And so you got Christianity, you got the church, and then this one will not surprise some of you, but it will make you smile, hopefully, and that's that there's a third area that every one of you are involved in with yourself that's also going to offend, and it's this, your personality, and I mean your personality, as wonderful as it is, <laughs> will offend other people at times. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's the deal. God has made you wonderful and in his image. We know that. The Bible says this. And he's made you with a very unique personality. But because not every personality fits every relationship, and because we live in a fallen world in which you're going to be misperceived at times, or even because your personality might be too much or too little at times, it's going to offend some people. It, it is. I got an email this week that just made my week. It's from a, a guy in the congregation that I know. I've traveled with him. He's a successful businessman in the Scottsdale area here. He was a, a pilot uh, in Vietnam and served his country well. He's decorated. He, he's very, very bright, but he's a very intense personality. He had a radical conversion to Christianity about 30 years ago, and his life has never been the same since. And it's revolutionized his marriage and every aspect of his life. And so he sent me this email, and I want to read it to you, and then you'll see my point in a minute. And I asked him if I could anonymously, and he said yes. 
He says, Jamie, I have no clue as to why I'm being prompted to write this, as I have no intention or premonition of dying anytime soon. I'm not depressed. I'm not being morbid. I'm definitely not drinking. But I would expect you or Daryl to be asked to do my funeral when the time comes. He says, please make it the boldest and most direct presentation of the gospel you have ever done and call the non-believers to make a decision that very day if they have any tug on their hearts at all. An analogy that I've often used is one of marriage. We walk into the chapel a single person and we leave a married one. And the only thing that transpired was we said, I do. Challenge them to say, I do to Jesus now and walk out of that funeral service saved, forgiven, and a believer ready to join their friend me in heaven. He says, tell them I asked you to skip the eulogy of me and make the message about them. He says, you would not do this, but I went to a funeral this weekend where the pastor droned on about how good the person was, the goodness of God, how great heaven is, endless platitudes until I wanted to scream. He never mentioned repentance, salvation, grace, assurance, or how the deceased actually attained heaven. No challenge to the attendees to think about their own mortality or the need to make a decision. And then he says, I know that you will remember this email for at least the next 30 years before I go. I thought, well, that's obvious. He says, my wife and I are delighted to be at SBC 25 years now. It's wonderful, thanks. And then his name. I got to tell you, that made my week. I mean, I'm a fairly intense personality, so I'm just like going, yes, I can't wait for that funeral. And <laughs> I mean, whether it's, it's Daryl or me doing it, I mean... Woo! It's going to be awesome. And I'll let you know if and when it's coming up. And I emailed him back and I said, I'm in. I'm in 100%. And, and, and we had a laugh about it. Now, now, let me ask you a question. This is my point in reading it to you. Do you think a person, personality like that might offend some people at times? Yes or no? Well, yeah. I mean, he's forward, he's candid, he's in your face, and he's like that in every aspect of life, and I love him, but I know personalities like that. These are the kind that you either love or, yeah, that's it, and, and I'm sure that he gets that, and I know how even some of you are thinking right now, because I know church people, you're sitting there thinking right now, you know, you're right, Jamie, that person is really forward, he's really intense, he's candid, he's in your face. I'm glad I'm not like that. And you're saying, you know, I, I'm more introverted and mellow in my temperament. And you know what I would say to you? Yeah, you are. And you're also passive aggressive as the day is long. Isn't that true? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't clap at that. Because right now that passive aggressive person is planning their passive aggressive tendencies at me. <laughs> I live with this. I got kids. And some of my kids are really intense and they tell you what they think. And then the more mellow one of mine, you know, she, she's a little bit sarcastic in her comments, and she's veiled in her threats, and, you know, and then sometimes she's a little bit manipulative in her words, and I'm just like, spit it out! Just say it! I, you're angry right now. I get it. Can't you be more like me? Why don't you be like your mom? You know, come on! And, and I get it. We have all these different temperaments floating around in our family. And again, some of you passive-aggressive people are saying, I'm not like that. <laughs> Ask your spouse. Ask your kids, ask your best friend. If they're honest with you, they'll tell you that that's your tendency. And, and here's the deal. It's okay in many ways that this is who you are. But whether intense and in your face or mellow and at times manipulative, we all have different personalities. And there's good points 
And there's not so good points to them. Remember the fall. This all goes back to the fall. And I'm not excusing obnoxious behavior or manipulative behavior, but for those of us who are honest with ourselves, it's hard to change your personality. It is. And though we hope to grow and mature over time, there's going to be times when your personality, the good parts of it, and even the difficult parts of it, are going to offend people. This is what Paul the Apostle was dealing with in Galatia. He had a Christian faith that would offend at times, a stone that makes him stumble. He had a church that was going to offend at times. And he had a personality even that, that had, was a certain way, and that played into it. So the very nature of your multifaceted and very complex life means you can't always please others. And we're going to talk in just a second about what we can do about that. But before I get to that, let me mention to you one other thing, a second key thing that this single passage in Galatians 1 teaches us. And this one's going to stun some of you, but I, I really believe that this is what the passage is teaching. And that is not only can't you please others, but it's also teaching us you don't always want to please others. You dare not please others. What do I mean by this? Remember earlier when I was explaining to you what commentators call the Galatian controversy, the fact that you have Jews and Gentiles in the same church very early on in Christianity, and, and that they were wrestling with law and grace and, and what it all means, and even how some were accusing Paul uh, of trying to please one group or the other. Well, look one last time at this passage, and this time notice the implied answers to the two rhetorical questions that Paul asks, and then dial into the one statement he makes. And as you do that, ask yourself, how did Paul solve this tension of having to please either side? Let's go for it. Galatians 1, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? The implied answer is God. Second rhetorical question, or am I trying to please man? The answer is no. He says, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And here's what hit me about this. And that is that, that Paul is switching gears here in his mind as he's talking about people pleasing and the, the accusation he gets about having to please others. He's switching gears here into a certain mode that, that I think is very instructive for you and I. Before we get to that, notice that he's not trying to split the baby here. He's not trying to find some compromise that's going to please both Gentiles and Jews. So he's not going to suggest in the coming verses, hey, maybe we ought to just like obey some feasts but not all of them. Maybe we ought to circumcise half our kids but not all of them. And maybe we should say that you should avoid pork uh, but only on Fridays. And, you know, he's, he's not saying any of that. He, he's not going to try to look for some compromise as many of us would do when we're in a situation like this. No, what I see him doing here is completely jettisoning this idea of people-pleasing. It's not even on his radar. And he's just saying, making the point, I'm here to please God. I I'm here to please God, and in this situation, that's the only thing that I'm concerned about. He's not in people-pleasing mode at all. And so don't miss that implicit here, then, is that Paul knew that the answer to the dilemma, which we're going to talk about in weeks to come, is not going to be found in trying to please people, but it's only going to come from hearing God. And that's why Paul said, i, I got to be a God-pleaser in, in this area of my life, if not every area of my life. And the solution that Paul's going to get from God, because this is God's word come through Paul, the solution 
that God's going to give Paul here is not going to be about pleasing one group or the other because it's going to be for both groups. The solution that we'll get to in a few weeks here is going to be for everyone, but it comes from Paul being totally God-focused so that he could hear from Paul. And so what I need you to see more than anything else, folks, is that Paul simply didn't have the mindset here that you can't always please others. He had the subtly further and different mindset that he dared not please others because if he did, he wouldn't hear God. And you're saying, what's the difference? See, I think sometimes when we say, well, I can't please all the people all of the time, we're still in people-pleasing mode. As I said earlier, we're struggling with it. We're wrestling with it, right? When I hear Christians say, well, I can't please all the people all the time, they're basically wrestling and they're struggling and all of that. And, and so they're still kind of caught between two worlds. And that's okay. That's where we are. But when you make the statement in certain times in your life, and we have to do this in a non-defensive way, but when you make the statement, I dare not please others here. I dare not try to be a people pleaser here. But I must be a God pleaser here. Now you're playing a totally different ball game. And all I know is that there's times in life when that's exactly what you and I must do. Six some odd years ago, I had been called by Scottsdale Bible Church when I was in Cleveland to consider uh, throwing my name in the ring to become the next senior pastor here. And one of the things that I did very early on in the decision of whether even to move forward with Scottsdale Bible was to seek wise counsel. That's always a good thing to do. And you seek wise counsel from people that know you and love you and ideally know God as well. And so I sought wise counsel from one of my key mentors who was not living in Cleveland at the time. I called him. We had a long phone conversation. And then from a family member, not my wife, that knows me very, very well. And uh, both of these people said the same thing. They said, it's our opinion you should not move forward with seeking this position at Scottsdale Bible Church. And I said, why? They said, you got a good gig going here in Cleveland, and, you know, things are going well, and they need you here, and it's going to thing, and they just, there, that was their reasoning. I thanked them for their counsel, and as I prayed about it further, and as I talked about it with Kim further, I, I realized that I felt a tug very strongly within me, and for good reason, to continue the discussion with Scottsdale Bible Church. And I don't do that very lightly. I, I don't usually go against wise counsel that way, but I, but I really strongly felt that. I also knew that when I was choosing to go forward with Scottsdale Bible, now, now here's where it, it all comes to a rub, I, I knew that if somehow I ended up here, then that wasn't going to please these two men who have been so formidable in my life. I knew at the very least it was going to be awkward. I, I knew that that was going to be difficult because this was going to define the next 10 so years at least of my life. And I remember getting to a point where I, I said, I, I need to get out of a people-pleasing mode here if I'm going to move forward. This can't be about man. It has to be about God, or I'm not going to hear him. And that felt very lonely. And I can remember, this is true, going to Kim, my wife, and saying, honey, I just feel so alone in this, and it's just between me and God. And I said, what's your opinion on this? And she said, it's you and God, pal. She said, I'm Ruth, you're Boaz, and I'm following you wherever you go. She said, but this is you. This is your call, and you got to make it. Now I felt doubly alone. <laughs> but I was able to hear God. I, I was able to hear God as I wrestled with him on what he would have for me and my family and my church in this next season of our life. 
And I'm not going to ask you, aren't you glad I did? But I hope you are glad <laughs> that I did. And no, no, don't, 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 don't. Oh, you guys are losers. <laughs> and you see, here's my point is that you, you have those things come up in your life all the time where, where you need to hear from God and you need to have wise counsel from others. Don't hear me saying that. But there's times, isn't there, where if you're too concerned about pleasing others, if you're too concerned about what they're going to think, you're not going to hear God. And so there's times where you and I need to say we dare not please others here precisely because we need to hear God. And that's exactly what Paul was doing as he was being inspired by God writing the book of Galatians here. And that's where you and I are. And that's key to not being a people pleaser. So how do we do this? We have just a couple minutes left before we go on to our elder fund offering. But let me share with you in closing two thoughts that have helped me over the years in applying Galatians 1 verse 10 without being too defensive about it. Now, the first thought is love other people, love others, but don't bend your shape in order to please them. I love that phrase, bend your shape. I actually got it from a commentator uh, this week, I've said it in different ways in the past, but I like the way he said it, a modern-day commentator that was basically saying that we need to love other people, we need to involve them and care for them and relate to them and be in community with them, but, but we need to remember that it's God that, who has made us, it's God who has shaped us, it's God that we serve first through Christ, and we dare not bend our shape for others. And what he means by that is don't compromise who you are. Uh, don't, don't, don't change your core personality, your convictions, your passion, your life focus, just because someone else doesn't approve. And at the same time as you do that, don't, don't become that overly defensive person, but love others. Don't withdraw. Don't take your ball and go home. Don't isolate, but love. And you know what's fascinating? Is that in the coming weeks, we're going to see this is exactly what Paul the Apostle did. I mean, he's going to hear from God because God is writing this book through him, and, and he's going to hear what the answer is to this Galatian controversy. Now, now dial into this. And, and he does not, in his answer, try to alienate the Jews. He does not try to alienate the Gentiles. He tries to keep them all in the same ring and say, but I'm not here to please you, but I am here to love you. And here's the answer that God gives. And see, you and I can do the same things if we remember to love others but don't bend our shape in order to please them. And how do you do that? This is the second thing. With this, we're done. Serve Christ first and foremost, and all else will fall into place. I, I was really convicted by that, that phrase at the end of Galatians 1.10 where it says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The reason that was convicting to me this week is because I thought of the converse. I thought if it's true that if we were still trying to please men, we would not be a servant of Christ, then it also must be true that when I am trying to please man in an overly pleasing way, it means that I'm waning in my service to Christ. It has to be that true. I mean, you can't have one way without the other. You can't say that when I'm not pleasing man that I'm actually doing it to serve Christ and, and then at the same time say, yeah, but when I am pleasing man, I'm just fine with God. No, it, it has to be both ways. So there are going to be times in life where you and I need to say that the anecdote, that the way that you and I, the antidote, the way that you and I do not fall into a people-pleasing mode is just to focus on and, and up our commitment to Christ. As C.S. Lewis would say, first things first. If first place things are first place in your life, then all else is going to fall into place. And so my encouragement to you, and this is my closing thought, is that you can do these things. 
You know, I, I, I don't work out as much as I used to. I need to more, but I, I do work out a few times a week, and I have a friend that helps me. He's a trainer, and he, he, he does this just because he loves me. And there are times when I'm in the middle of my workout, and like you guys, I just feel like quitting. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm 49, I'm getting too much for this. I just, and, and the problem is where I work out, I got a direct line of sight to Chick-fil-A, and it's at lunchtime. <laughs> It's a true story. I'm seeing all these cars going through, and I'm just salivating, you know, after Chick-fil-A and waffle fries and all that stuff, and I'm going, you know, and it's just awful. And, and my trainer can see that in me. He sees where my eyes are going, and he knows that we got ways to go in the workout, and, and he'll do this Arnold Schwarzenegger imitation, you know, you can do it. And he just encourages me to keep on. You see, I give you the same encouragement. You can do these things. You can. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And everything that God asks you to do, you can do. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And so as you go out of here today, be encouraged. You're going to battle this people-pleasing, God-pleasing thing. But, but as you stay in the ring with God, as you make first things first, as you say, I dare not be a people-pleaser, these are things that you can apply by the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Thank you for your word that comes to us inerrant and true. And I pray, Father, that as we do apply these things in our lives, even this week, that, God, you would give us small and even big victories, that we might know that, Lord, you are with us. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that would not go to either extreme in our codependence or our defensiveness, but that we'd be centered in a God first, others second, loving others, but serving Christ uh, kind of mode, and that, God, you would use us as a result. So thank you for our time and your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.